So we're reading from two passages, one from the Old Testament, Exodus 33, and one from the New Testament, John 1. So we'll pick up um, Exodus 33 at verse 15. That's at the top left column on page 65 in the church Bibles. And this is where Moses is meeting with God on the mountain. So Exodus 33, verse 15. Then Moses said to the Lord, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you. And I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen." The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So... Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And now we'll read from John chapter 1, the first 18 verses of that chapter. That's to be found on page 750. This is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. 
There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me was surpassed has surpassed me before he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In my family, we have an unwritten rule that you can't start decorating or singing Christmas carols or eating Christmas food until December 1. But once December 1 comes along, then it's a free-for-all for the next 25 days. So already I've had Christmas pudding and, uh, and custard, brandy custard. Another thing that happens in my family is that we always try to say, Jesus is the greatest thing about Christmas. You know, the kids are all excited about decorating and about Christmas parties. And of course, what they're most excited about is getting presents. And so a bit like a broken record, we say, now remember, Jesus is the greatest gift of Christmas. But even as, as I'm saying it, I know I'm not really convincing them. And even in my own ears at times, it, it doesn't sound very convincing in that moment. When faced with things like decorations and and presents and parties, it's a bit hard to really visualise and to really feel in a real way what we mean by saying Jesus is the greatest gift at Christmas. But then having said that, the reality is that the things that seem to dominate our attention at Christmas, which seem so real at the time, as great as they are, they just don't last. So every year by 1pm on Christmas Day, when I'm looking at the wrapping paper mess on the floor and the washing up in the kitchen, I always feel that as great as Christmas is, it doesn't really satisfy. And every year, even though the kids are so excited about the presents and they think it's all about the presents no matter what you say, every year I notice that no matter what they get, they're never really happy. They're never really satisfied. They're always looking for that one hidden present underneath the tree or amongst the wrapping paper. Someone was telling me that when they were little, they used to get an orange for Christmas and a pencil and a rubber. 
Some Christmases these days, I think, maybe I should do that. Just get the kids an orange or splurge and get them a mango. I mean, what kind of person isn't satisfied with a mango? And at least I'd be giving them a story to tell to their psychologist later on as well. (laughs) Maybe it sounds unconvincing in our ears that Jesus is the best gift at Christmas, but it really shouldn't. Because everything else at Christmas time will leave us feeling a bit empty or a bit bloated. But what God gives us in Jesus leaves us with our hearts still full and still satisfied. 1pm Christmas, the next day and every day after that forever. Today we start a series that will take us right up to Christmas looking at some of the gifts that God is giving us when he gives us Jesus. We're going to push deeper to see why Jesus really is the greatest gift. We're going to look at four gifts that we get with Jesus, which we see in the Gospel of John. We're going to see life to the full, freedom, light. And today we see what God gives us in John 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In Jesus, what we get is God giving us the way that we can know him. But I reckon it could be very easy for us to miss just what a massive gift this is. I mean, have you ever given a a gift to someone where the value of it's been completely missed by that person? I once uh, wanted to give my boss uh, a really big Christmas present to say thanks he was a pharmacist and he'd, he'd given me a job when I was still in school. He'd helped me get into uni to study pharmacy. And then later on, he'd actually helped me um, keep my registration as a pharmacist. And so I wanted to give him a really big gift to say thank you. And I thought, what can I possibly get him? I knew he was into wine. And so I decided to get him a really good, extravagant bottle of wine to say thank you. But my dilemma was that I knew that he knew that I know nothing about wine. And my dilemma was that if I bought him an $80 bottle of wine, that he'd think it was $9.99 from Dan Murphy's. And so in the end, I asked for help at the counter and I, I, I said, which bottle says to a coffee snob unmistakably, this is special extravagant stuff? We could miss what an extravagant gift this is from God very easily. And what a terrible tragedy that would be. For us to appreciate just how enormous this gift from God is, we've got to appreciate two things. We've got to appreciate just what a privilege it is to know God. And we need to appreciate just how extraordinary it is that people like us could know God. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. That's what we heard in that story about Moses before. No one truly gets to see God. Not completely, not fully. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. It's not an everyday, ordinary kind of thing to know God. And this is what our first point is really getting at. Only God can make himself known. For the last five years or so, I've had these cards sitting on my, um, my shelf in my study. 
And every so often I, I pull them out and I flick through them until they irritate me and I put them back again. They're called love map cards and I accidentally stole them from my previous church uh, at a marriage enrichment day, which is why I can never go back there again and show my face. <laughs> These love map cards, they're supposed to give you an indication of, of how well you're going at knowing someone, knowing your spouse. And so one of them, as I flick through them, says, what's your partner's favourite way to spend an evening? Well, that one's easy with me, of course. <laughs> the next one says, what was your partner's most embarrassing moment? Well, I'm not going to tell you, am I? Even if I could think of it, which, if I'm honest, I can't. What is the date of your anniversary? Is the next one. I know that one. It's 27th of January. That's all good. Does your partner have a secret ambition? What is it? I don't know. What's your partner's favourite TV show? Well, I know she likes Downton Abbey and Call the Midwives and other boring shows like that, but I'm not really sure what her favourite one is. What would be an ideal job for your partner? I don't know. Why so many questions? It's about this point that I get irritated with the cards, the so-called love map cards, and they go back on my shelf. And I'm left thinking, who is this lady that I've been married to for 16 years? Do I even know her? And the reason... I'm irritated, of course, is because even though I've had the same question sitting there for five years that I look at from time to time, I'm still not 100% sure of the answers. And I think, does this make me a bad husband? Don't answer that question. The exercise is supposed to show that really knowing someone isn't easy. It doesn't just happen accidentally. It, it takes time. It takes effort. And you've, you've got to be paying really close attention. And of course, the other side of the equation is that it takes the other person showing their true selves to you. Now, that wasn't the problem in my case. You know, I just need to be a better listener. But if for some reason Kathy didn't want to be known, then I'd have no chance of knowing her. No amount of time or effort will let you know what someone is like unless they open themselves up unless they want you to get to know them. Not even Facebook stalking will reveal what they're really like, unless they let you in. Now, that's true for humans, for us. This is even more true when it comes to knowing God. The only way we can know God is if He makes Himself known. Only God can make Himself known to us. Because with God, we don't have to just cross the barrier of one person to another equal person. To know God, we have to cross an infinite barrier. How can a finite creature possibly know its infinite creator? How can humans, tiny specks in a, in a vast world, how could we know the author of this entire universe? Different ways of thinking come up with different answers. So take atheism. Atheism says that if God's there, then we could know Him and we could easily know Him because we can know anything real that we set our minds to knowing. That's what atheism says. And so because God can't be known by our scientific endeavour, He doesn't exist. But this is, first of all, to confuse God with creation itself. 
God can't be known by studying him like something within creation. God's outside of creation completely. And second, this is to greatly overestimate the ability of the human mind to know the infinite. Atheism makes the mistake of thinking God is knowable by our probing and since he's not known by our probing, he's not there. But there's no reason why that should be true. That's a kind of faith belief. And what it misses is that only God can make himself known to us. Deism is a completely different way of thinking that was particularly popular a couple of hundred years ago. Deism basically says the opposite to atheism. It says it's entirely logical to believe that there's a God, but it's illogical to think that finite creatures like us could ever know the infinite God who made everything. So in Deism, God isn't knowable. He's not personal. It's like he he winds up the universe like a clock and he sets it going and then he stays quiet, completely out of it. And we can't know anything about him. Now, Deism gets one thing right. No amount of reaching up to God will give you God. It's right that we can't go from the finite to the infinite. No matter how intelligent we are, no matter how well we probe scientifically, no matter how spiritual we are even, we can't reach up and feel our way to God. But deism is wrong too, because it misses that while humans can't make God known, God can make himself known. Could the the infinite God choose to make himself known to finite people? Of course he could. He's infinite. There's nothing he can't do. The infinite God could cross the barrier, but only he can do it. Only God can make himself known to us. And this brings us to our second point. God's greatest gift to us is making himself known to us. Now really this should be obvious to us. Even for human relationships, there's, there's no greater gift that you can give to someone than yourself. When I uh, got engaged to Kathy, I went to all this effort, packing this kind of picnic lunch and then lugging this oversized picnic basket out to a, a view over the coast on the edge of a cliff. Why are you laughing about the cliff? That wasn't deliberate. <laughs> it was convenient. I was quite young when I got engaged and so, like most uni students, I was pretty poor. And so the engagement ring that I bought, I think, cost about $200. I think it's a real diamond, but I don't really want to know. Don't go anywhere near it, Simon. But I was confident that Kathy didn't mind that it only cost $200, partly because she helped me choose it, but mostly because it was just a symbol. The real gift was what we were giving each other. It was ourselves, our promise of commitment no matter what. The greatest gift that we can give someone is ourselves. Now, that's true for us, even though our value just can't come anywhere near God's value. And so, of course, it's true for God. What greater gift could God give beyond himself? There's no greater good. There's no greater joy that that we could find anywhere. There's nothing more wonderful in all the universe than God himself. It would just be 
foolish to think otherwise. The one who made every single gift in this life, he can't give a gift higher than himself. Now, of course, this should be obvious to us, but it's not. Humans have got a tendency to love the gifts more than the giver. God wants us to love his gifts, but he wants us to understand what they mean. He wants us to recognize him, the giver. But the thing is, we're not just finite, we're not just limited, we're also fallen. Which means that even when we're presented with the truth about God, we have a natural aversion to it. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We have a fallen tendency to reject God even when he makes himself known to us. Even when we see evidence of of the true God, evidence in the world, evidence in our lives, evidence in scripture, we've got a bias against knowing God. And so the greatest gift that God can ever give us is actually to break through that bias and to cause us to suddenly look up from the gift and see him, the giver. This week, someone here was telling me about a conversation that they had with a a workmate who said that they were an atheist. But this workmate said said to them, if there is a God, he should be happy with me anyway because I'm a good person. This is a really common way of thinking, isn't it? Um, it can even go like this. If God's not happy with me, then that's his problem. Because this is just who I am. And I wouldn't want to know a God like that anyway. Who wants a friend who's always criticizing them and trying to change them? But actually, this gets things completely around the wrong way. It's actually us who are being judgmental. It's us saying to God, you should change God. We're saying, God, I'm not interested in you, but I'm a good person and you should be happy with that. And if not, you're the one with the problem. You should change. But who would be happy to have kids that got good grades at school and and kept their room tidy, but they were completely uninterested in knowing you? Who wouldn't even talk to you, wouldn't even acknowledge your existence? I would far rather have kids that did terrible at school and, and, and whose room was filthy, but who loved me and wanted to know me. The problem's not with us. Sorry, the problem is with us. It's not with God. Because even when God makes himself known to us, we don't want to know him. And we expect God to be happy with that. We expect God to, to bend over backwards for us. We expect him to fit himself around who we want to be. I remember one time when I was a teenager, Dad was um, giving me a lift somewhere and I was going through a bit of a a phase of of withdrawing from my parents and so he asked me what he could do to connect with me a bit more. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking this is a bit weird, a bit awkward but then I thought, okay, I, I suppose that could be sort of good. So I said, you could read some of the books that I read and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. What else? <laughs> now, at the time, that kind of shut things down for me. But now I, I look back and I think, was it really fair of me to expect him to do that? 
I was one of six kids. He was busy. He didn't want to read the junk I was reading. And if he did that for all six of us, imagine it. He'd have six rubbish books on the go at once. How could I possibly have expected him to cross those kind of barriers and and enter my world like that? Now, myself, a dad of four kids, I I can see why that was a, a huge expectation on my dad. But the fact is, we expect God to be like that. We expect God to meet us where we're at. And we think, if God's not going to get to know me on my terms, then I'm not interested. How ridiculous that that we could ever think like that. Who do we think we are? But of course, while it's ridiculous that we could ever expect that of God, it's exactly what He does. God, unlike my dad, enters our world to make Himself known. And God crosses every barrier in order to do it. God does the ridiculous. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus is God making God known. Look again at verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word who we heard was with God The Word who is God becomes flesh, human, so that He can make the Father known. When I was a teenager, a certain song would always play on the radio and and get stuck in my my head. This song was like a a 90s kind of emo, woe is me kind of song. And it goes, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on the bus. Yeah, yeah, God is good. It's going to be stuck in your head all day too now. It sort of loses its rebellious edge when you realise that had the person who wrote this song ever paid attention to what was happening at Christmas, they would have realised God's been there, done that. In Jesus, God becomes one of us, just an ordinary person like one of us. And he does it to make himself known. As the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus now, Emmanuel. God is spectacular in every way. But if you were there at the Big Bang, if somehow God could show you his enormous power bringing this this universe into existence, still you would not know God fully. If you were there at the the creation of this earth, if if God could show you his creative beauty crafting this world, still you would not know God fully. And if you were there, even at the parting of the Red Sea with the wind and, and the waters building up on either side, crossing through, If God could show you his awesome power in saving his ancient people, still you wouldn't know him in all his brilliance and beauty and power. What it takes for us mere creatures to know our creator is God crossing every barrier to become one of us. Only Jesus can make God fully known because he is himself God the Son, become man. And he is in the closest relationship with the Father. 
Irenaeus in 180 AD wrote about this. See if you can um, follow along these really old words about how he talked about how it's so necessary for Jesus to be God and human. He writes, Christ caused human nature to cling to God, to be one with God. For had not a man banished the enemy of humanity, that enemy would not have been justly defeated. And on the other hand, had salvation been granted by anyone other than God, we would never have been sure of it. And if humanity had not joined, been joined to God, humanity could never have shared in incorruptibility. It was necessary, therefore, that the mediator between God and human beings be kin to both, to restore friendship and concord to both, presenting humanity to God and revealing God to humanity. Jesus is God making God known. Shake the hand of Jesus and you shake the hand of God. Hear the voice of Jesus. You, you hear the word of God in the words he speaks and in the simple fact that God speaks as a human. What God makes known to us is that he is a God who's not just powerful, almighty and glorious, but that he's a God whose power and might and glory is not diminished or lost by taking on our weakness. God coming to serve us in humility is not incompatible with his divinity. In fact, it's his glory. In Jesus, we get to see into the very heart of God and the gift that he gives us is that we can know the God who is committed to us completely and eternally. There's a line, another line in, in the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful, that some people really hate. And I, I read one blog this week that asked, is this the worst Christmas carol line ever? It, it goes, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. We're actually about to sing this Christmas carol after, after this in just a moment. And I noticed that in our, our version, the words have been changed to humbly, he enters the virgin's womb. I like the original. I think it's great. And because it's so strange, it really causes you to think. What does it actually mean? Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. When you think about it, I mean, you don't have time as you're singing along, but when you really stop and ponder it, it makes perfect sense for God to abhor the virgin's womb. Even for us humans who are made of the same stuff of this earth, even though we were once embryos ourselves, the idea of being reduced back to an embryo, slowly growing over nine months, the idea sounds completely abhorrent to me. It sounds humiliating. It sounds like a prison. It sounds demeaning. And yet, not for God. The God who made everything so wanted to give us the gift of himself that he was even willing to take on the stuff of creation. In his divinity, our God doesn't despise the earthiness even of being born. I mean, think about the barriers that God had to cross to make himself known. He comes from heaven to earth, from eternity into time. From divinity, he takes on humanity. From creating galaxies even, he takes on a cluster of cells within his own creation. 
That's what it took for us to truly know him. Not just about him, but to know God as father. This is not a fairy tale. This really is the kind of God that we have. A God that no human imagination could ever invent. A God we could never reach up and pull down from heaven. This is the one true living God, completely unlike anything or anyone in the universe, who reaches down and pulls us up to him. And he does it with the hand of a human, Jesus. The finite can't grasp the infinite. But it's not beyond the infinite to enter the finite and to take hold of us. It's only ridiculous because of what it reveals about God. His ridiculous love for us. His ridiculous commitment to us. There was another pharmacy boss I had who uh, only liked to drink unwooded Chardonnay. I'm not sure why all my stories about pharmacists also involve alcohol. It probably does tell you something about most of them. I'd never tasted this particular wine, unwooded Chardonnay, but I'd never even really seen it before. But I thought it would make a good Christmas present um, for this boss. And so I I tracked it down, which was actually quite hard to do, at least in Armadale. But in the end, I found a good bottle of it. But as I gave it to him, I could see by the kind of glazed, disinterested look in his eyes that it was as good as re-gifted before it even made it to his hand. He'd missed what I was trying to communicate with the gift. He missed that I'd been listening to him. He missed the effort I'd gone to. It just did not speak at all what I wanted it to speak. Now, I know I've done that before when people have given me gifts too. But this is one gift that we're talking about today that we don't want to miss the value of. God is giving us the greatest gift possible, himself. In Jesus, God is making it possible for us to know him as Father. Verse 12 says, To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received this gift? If you haven't, come talk to me. You might feel a bit awkward, but it's, it's worth talking about it. And if you have received this gift, are you realising this Christmas just how amazing, just the treasure that it is to know God? Jesus really is the greatest gift at Christmas because he makes the Father known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only stand in awe and wonder in the end at who you are, who you've revealed yourself to be. A God so powerful, mighty, holy, and yet willing to stoop in Jesus, to claim us to be your own, not because there's anything wonderful in us. Lord, your mercy is just astounding. It's life-changing. Lord, help us to treasure deeply what it is that we have received at Christmas time, even in all the the trappings of Christmas help us not to make the mistake of, of missing just how valuable this gift is that you've given us. We thank you so much for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.